1: Jay Gatsby is the embodiment of patriotism. What does that mean for America? Join New Books Network host Lee Pierce and author Grill Marcus as they take a deep dive into how F. Scott Fitzgerald's vision of the American dream has been understood, portrayed, distorted, misused, and kept alive. In Under the Red, White, and Blue, renowned critic Grill Marcus takes on the fascinating legacy of F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby an enthralling parable or a cheap metaphor of the American dream as a beckoning finger toward a con game, a kind of virus infecting artists of all sorts over nearly a century, Fitzgerald's story has become a key to American culture and American life itself. The book follows the arc of the Great Gatsby from 1925 into the ways it has insinuated itself into works by writers such as Philip Roth, Raymond Chandler, found echoes in the work of performers from Jelly Roll Morton to Lana Del Rey, and continued to rewrite both its own story and that of the country at large in the hands of dramatists and filmmakers from the 1920s to John Collins's 2006 Gats and Boz Lerman's critically reviled, here celebrated 2013 movie version. The fourth so far. We hope you enjoy and stay tuned for more information on the interview. Welcome back everyone to new books and language, a channel on the new books network. I'm Lee Pierce. I'm an assistant professor of rhetoric. I use she, they pronouns, and I am thrilled today to be talking to grill Marcus, the author of under the red, white, and blue patriotism, disenchantment, and the stubborn myth of the great Gatsby grill. Are you there? I'm right here. Well, thank you so much for joining. Um, this is a really awesome interview to be having on the New Books Network because we typically deal with sort of obscure academic monographs. And so this is a book meant for, to be accessible to just all different kinds of interests and all different levels of reading. And so we're thrilled that you could join us. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about yourself, the listeners at home, and maybe what uh, led you to the book uh, or maybe just some of the, the greatest insights from the book that might help them, might help whet their appetites for the interview?
0: Sure. I started writing about music um, for Rolling Stone in 1968. And I've <clears throat> I've gone on since there. The first book that I wrote was called Mystery Train. It came out in 1975. And an early chapter of that book was about the 1930s blues singer Robert Johnson. And trying to get... Um, a purchase on who Johnson was, what he did, what his music was about, what the sense of of loneliness, uh, of of searching for a a place to call home and, and a sort of unutterable loneliness that I found in his music. I turned to the last page of The Great Gatsby. So there were a couple of paragraphs in that chapter of that book 45 years ago about The Great Gatsby, just to you know find um, uh, um, a simpatico moment in American art that matched Robert Johnson. And it was those lines about the great shore places were closed now, and Nick Carraway, the narrator of The Great Gatsby, is just trying to get a sense of, of who Gatsby was and what his adventure tragedy was about and he looks out from Long Island um, into Long Island Sound and he begins to imagine Dutch sailors arriving there in the 17th century uh, and what they saw and what they could have imagined and how awestruck they must have been. Um, And really what he's saying is that Gatsby was on that ship with the Dutch sailors and he glimpsed the American promise uh, just as they did um, and went on to try and live that out. I didn't really understand all that when I was making this correspondence 45 years ago, but the book that I've written now really grows out of a kind of um, unsettled affairs from um, that page long ago.
1: Yeah, because this is in part a book about not just the Great Gatsby, but sort of its legacies, I guess you might say. But it's also a really interesting look at how your unique definition of American patriotism from your lens. And so it's kind of a you get like a twofer, right? You get a commentary on this thing we call the American dream and a really unique take on that as kind of a a doubledness, sort of a, a double bind of promise and also kind of like criminality in a way and how that's like a perpetuating cycle but then all of that is done through Gatsby and then all of these ways you kind of see Jay Gatsby showing up like the legacies the the archetypes in very different places often which don't even explicitly mention Gatsby so have you been collecting those over the years kind of always knowing they would lead somewhere or did it just happen one day that you realized you had a book in your mind
0: it was really more that one day I realized I had a book and then all kinds of things began to feed into it. But, you know, since the book was published, I've had conversations with different people. And so many more echoes of Fitzgerald's book have come out that I either forgot or never thought of. Um, uh, Joe Gillis, face down in uh, Norma Desmond's yes. swimming pool in Sunset Boulevard. Pretty much in American art, anytime you've got a corpse floating in a swimming pool, you're looking at somebody reaching out to touch Jay Gatsby.
1: Ah. Uh,
0: Somebody mentioned how, you know, in in The Great Gatsby, there's this subplot involving Tom Buchanan and his girlfriend, who's married to a a gas station owner, garage owner, um, who's who's clueless about everything and ends up... um, killing Gatsby at the very end because Tom Buchanan has fingered him for the murder of uh, Tom Buchanan's mistress. Well, somebody said, well, what about the postman always rings twice? You know, you've got this gas station, you've got clueless Nick, uh, you've got Cora, you've got uh, Frank, you've got John Garfield and Lana Turner. Um, and, you know, it's like, Oh, of course. So whether or not James M. Kane Um, or Billy Wilder, um, meant to echo Gatsby, they did. And that's really what the book is about, my book. It's about how the story of Gatsby is a story we all know, whether or not we've ever read the book, whether or not we've even seen one of the movies. Mm -hmm. It's just there as a kind of free-floating metaphor that we connect to whether we intend to or not so that gatsby continues to play out his story in so many other bodies and so many other minds and so many other um, contexts
1: yeah and i um just and and i think that's one of the most interesting things about the book is to is, is how many places you find gatsby i mean it really feels more like an album than it does what I would consider like a traditional book. I mean, it, it, you'll be in the middle of one text and then move over to another text and then you'll transition back to the text and then later that text will show back up. I really like it. It feels more like a network than a line, so to speak, when you read it. Uh, but let's, just, just so we don't get ahead of the audience who hasn't read the book yet, what would you say is the big argument or the big takeaways if you had to tell the audience what they're gonna get out of the book or what the big ideas are, before we kind of dive into some of the ways they're played out in specific pieces?
0: Well, you know, I pretty much go on the assumption that people are familiar with the story, the boilerplate story, one way or other. They've read the book in high school. They've read The Great Gatsby as an assigned book in high school. They've seen one of the movies. They just know the metaphor without thinking about it. You know, it's, it's a story taking place in 1922 of this enormously rich man, who's completely mysterious. Nobody really knows who he is, let alone where his fortune comes from. Uh, throwing these, these fantastic parties on Long Island, attracting hundreds and hundreds of people from all over the area in New York City. And people just show up. It's the place to be every Saturday night. They're gonna be movie stars. They're gonna be ambassadors. They're gonna be billionaires, all sorts of people. Diving drunk into his swimming pool and you know dancing to bands and having three meals until four a m and it's just going to be incredible, nobody really understands what this is all about and A young guy who's come from um, come from Minnesota to um the East to become a banker he's gone to yale uh, and he ends up in a cottage next to this enormous mansion owned by Gatsby. And he becomes the narrator of Gatsby's story from the time that he meets him until uh, Gatsby's death. At the, this starts at the beginning of the summer of 1922 and it ends at the end of the summer. It's very much a summer romance in that sense. What this is all about is Gatsby's attempt to recapture a woman he met in 1917 in Louisville, Kentucky, fell in love with. He went off to the war. She was supposed to wait for him. She didn't. She married a billionaire, a crass, uncouth, racist bully who, Nick, as it happened, went to college with at Yale. He's a cousin of Daisy's, and so they just get drawn into a web together. And the story plays out until in the end, as Fitzgerald says, not having any idea what kind of historical weight this sentence would carry in the years to come, says the Holocaust was done. Meaning lots of people end up dead.
1: Yeah. And, well, I think this is so interesting because even for those of you for whom this book is not uh, familiar, you can already see just in the description of the book how much of it you get anyway, without and, maybe even ever having read it.
0: And what we find out is that Jay Gatsby is not is not his real name. He was born James Gats. He grew up in a poor family in North Dakota. He always was filled with aspirations, desires that neither his family or his tiny nowhere hometown could possibly satisfy. He never really believed that his parents were his parents. He never believed that James Gatz was his real name. And so he sets out to create himself, to invent himself, in the same way that the country was invented. He gives himself a name, he sets himself a destiny, and he steps out to pursue it. It's it's a theme that Philip Roth um, paralleled so wonderfully in The Human Stain, where he talks about um, Coleman Silk, uh, the, the hero of his story, with um, with um, you know Nathan Zuckerman as the uh, Nick Carraway stand-in as the narrator, as the witness, the person to whom the Gatsby figure spills out all of his secrets. Um, Coleman Silk has passed as a white man, as a Jew, all of his adult life. He was born into a black family, so identified, even though their ancestry takes in every, every conceivable um, side of the country, every ethnic group, every migration, anything you might say. But because of the way people look, that's what they are. Well, he looks white even though his parents look black. So he passes, and nobody knows, not even his wife, not even his children, certainly not his colleagues at the the college where he teaches. And Roth says, what a thing to wake up every day knowing that you were who you chose to be, who you invented, that you are carrying out the great American frontier tradition. To go out into the wilderness where nobody knows you, where you have no expectations to live up to, and you create your own country, and you create your own self as both citizen and president of this imaginary America that everybody carries within themselves. That's the argument of the book, uh, and that's that's the, the shape the book has, I think, come to take over the almost century since it was published.
1: Yeah. And you um, you have this great quote in the book about how John McCain, when he was running against Obama in 08, said, uh, what do we really know about this man? And so you take that quote about Obama from 08, connect it to Philip Rothstein, connect it back to Great Gatsby, because it's just a sort of like a, an iteration of that same self-making.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, that is a fundamental theme in American life. And history and experience it's not as if fitzgerald discovered it or made it up but he honed in on it and he made a story out of it that has proved indelible and also his it's a story that people have found irresistible in the sense people say i want to tell this story mm. in my way whether they do it explicitly with a movie called the great gatsby in a theatrical word-for-word uh, word reading of the book called GATS um, in an Andy Kaufman stand-up routine, or whether they do it elliptically and metaphorically, um, as in Lon Del Rey's song, uh, Young and Beautiful, and, and so many other things we could, that we could talk about.
1: Yeah, well, um, if you feel like it, I kind of highlighted some of my favorite parts of the book because there's just so many things in this book. Unfortunately, that's the downside of the interview is you never get to all of them. But I really loved the Kaufman reading on SNL. I I wasn't, I mean, even though I'm a pretty big SNL fan, I didn't remember the skit. It's very quirky. Even for Andy Kaufman, it felt quirky. So I don't know. Do you want to talk a little bit about that skit since you brought it up as one of the case studies, or do you want to move on to a different one?
0: Yeah, it's one of those things that you know you stumble upon. I had forgotten it too, I had watched it at the time, back in, I think, 1976. Um, but I stumbled on it, I watched it and I thought, God, how brilliant, this this is something completely new. This is, this is a reading of the book and what happens is, he comes out at the end of an episode of Saturday Night Live in 1976. There are about 20 minutes left and he says, You know, since I've been a guest on this show so many times and they trust me and they like me, they said I could have the last 20 minutes of the show, I could do anything I wanted. And he talks about things he might do, but he says, you know, he he found this book lying on a table and um, his high school English teacher told him it was the greatest American novel ever written. He doesn't agree with that, but he thinks maybe they could read the book He'd read the book, and then afterwards they'd have a discussion, and the audience could maybe point out things that he had missed in his lack of appreciation for this book, and he starts reading The Great Gatsby. And, you know, the audience is there. They've all read it in high school, and they think this is sort of a a very funny joke, reading this, this dead book. And he starts out, and you realize as he goes through the first paragraph This is really boring. It's got this terrible Opening, you know. (laughs) in, In my younger days, my father gave me some advice that I've been turning over in my mind ever since. And you're already half asleep listening to this. So people are laughing at just how dumb this is, how bad it is. But he keeps going, and he doesn't seem to be stopping. And people begin to, you know, boo, and they begin to jeer. And they begin to groan. And he doesn't stop. He keeps going. People begin shouting. You know, they're really angry. They're upset. This is painful. This is awful. And every time he hits a word that suggests he might be able to stop, um, might be about to stop. Sorry. Um, I've got my phone ringing.
1: That's all right. It happens all the time. (laughs)
0: Anyway, whenever whenever that happens, um, the audience sort of begins to cheer and to clap, to celebrate. Nope, he just keeps on going. This becomes a war with the audience. It becomes a battle. And it goes on and on and on to the point where now the audience is like a lynch mob. They just want to rush out and kill this guy if that's what it takes to get him to shut up. And it goes on for, you know, 15, 20 minutes until it finally reaches a bizarre conclusion. Now, not only is it a wonderful presentation Mm. of the tyranny of a so-called classic over our minds, the way that we're forced to acknowledge it, the way that we're forced to pretend to appreciate it, but it inspired somebody who was watching or who maybe saw it years later, that man was named John Collins, who's a theater director with a company called the Elevator Repair Service, his company. And he's thinking, you know, here's Andy Kaufman saying he's going to read the whole book. And he thinks, what if you could really do it? What if you could present some kind of theater piece where people read the entirety of The Great Gatsby? It's not a very long book, but it still would take six hours. And so he contrived a play called Gats, in which this really happens. And I saw it, I think, in 2006 in New York. It opened in, um, in um, Minnesota, in, um, and I was just stunned. I had never understood the book remotely as I did when I saw this, this play.
1: Yeah, that's clear. That's clear how much you, yeah, your your um, the, the way that you were moved by the play was very clear in the way that you closely read it for this chapter.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'd read the book any number of times before that. I thought it was totally familiar to me. It wasn't. It was as if I'd never read the book at all or seen any of the movies or anything. This drew me in. And I think, you know, it has that effect on many, many people.
1: So I could summarize kind of what you said in this chapter, but, you know, do you just want to, what was it about the play that changes how you read? Because I kind of felt the way about reading your book. I've never been a big Great Gatsby fan and I've seen the movies and I've read it, but reading you read it makes me more appreciative of the themes of the book and its complexity, even if the book itself never really caught my fancy. And you kind of sort of, sort of get the Great Gatsby from this play in a way you maybe didn't the same way from the novel. How does that happen for you?
0: well it's it's the fact the the way it happens for me i can I can say very simply music, and that is that ah. as, as the narrator played by uh, the actor Scott Shepherd, as the Nick Carraway character who starts out just as an office worker who's idly uh picking up a copy of the Great Gatsby and reading it out loud while he waits for a repairman to come and fix his computer in this ratty little office where he works so he can, you know, actually get something done. he's just passing the time by reading this book out loud while other people in the, um, in the office go about their various tasks and then slowly begin to turn into different characters in the book and speak their own dialogue as Nick Scott Shepard just continues on, um, Holding the book in his left hand and reading from it in every conceivable situation, regardless of what people around him are doing, I began to hear the way in which the book was written, the way it was constructed, so that it's full of echoes, so that there are images and there are lines of dialogue, there are thoughts, there are feelings that are planted in the book in certain places that are going to come up again in a way that's practically invisible or inaudible. You don't realize that the quality of your emotional response or your intellectual response is predicated on something that's happened many, many Mm -hmm. pages before that you never even noticed. And you don't think about now, but it gives all these symbols in the book, whether it's the green light, whether it's the reaching hand, whether it's an idea of the West, all of these things come into play in the last pages of the book. There is a sense of rhythm. There is a sense of melody. There's a way in which the book plays more than it's written. And the play, Gats, brought that out for me, particularly at the end when the other office workers are gone, the other characters fade away. Nick is there simply reciting um, as if he is Nick Carraway, the last pages of the book. And he puts the book down and does it from memory as if he's you know, really this person in front of you trying to tell you something. And at that point, I realized that there was a rhythm to what he was doing in the speech that he was um, offering. And it was a, it was a musical rhythm. And I noticed it because as he goes on, I was tapping my foot. Mm. When's the last time you did that in a, in a drama, in a theatrical drama? I was tapping my foot because he had keyed into this rhythm that Fitzgerald had set in the book that he had found. I had never found it. But once I realized that, then I read the book again mm. and again, and it began to seem um, so layered with musical echoes and memories and melodies and the way in which a certain um, instance in a song can flood you with memories and thoughts and associations, that that was how the book was made to work. You know, you find out, and if you go through the last 20, 30 pages of the book that this whole business of the green light uh, and the green future, that will dovetail at the very end into the um, fresh green breast of the new world that the Mm -hmm. Dutch sailors see. You realize that the green light at the end of Daisy's dock, that Gatsby is always reaching toward physically as he stands at the end of his own dock on the other side of Long Island Sound, that that green light is is the country itself, Mm -hmm. is America. As it was first seen. Um, And that's why it will never go out and it can never be reached.
1: Well, and you, this is, I'm glad you brought us to this point because one of the things I'd hoped to read was this insight you have about Fitzgerald's resistance to cliches. Because that's my thing is I just, I'm a very I'm very sensitive to cliches. I hear them and they're like nails on a chalkboard. And you sort of make this argument that one of the things that, that GATS, as you've already said, did is, is the way that it sort of takes away all of the trappings of the party and puts you in this, I think you call it uh, like sort of this milieu of ordinariness, right? This offer and the, this office worker and take out food. is suddenly you become able to hear the language in ways that you might not have previously noticed. And you make a comment that Gats- that uh, Fitzgerald is very resistant to cliches. And so you don't see them in Gatsby's language the way you might expect. And you list all of these kind of slangy 1920s expressions, you know, cat's pajamas, the bee's knees, and how that stuff isn't in the book because Fitzgerald is so attuned to making sure that his language has a timeliness to it, but also in a way that's going to age well. And I thought that was just a brilliant observation and something I hadn't thought about. But when I went back to read some of Great Gatsby after reading your book, I saw it too now in a way that I hadn't. And it makes me think of um, the inverse, which is uh, Hannah Arendt's trial of Eichmann. And Arendt watches Eichmann, who was like, you know, Adolf Hitler's second in command, explain the Holocaust to people and his part in it and can't use anything but cliches. Just it's all that comes out of his mouth. And so Fitzgerald is almost the inverse of that situation. And it really kind of speaks to two different ways that when you handle language, you kind of make worlds.
0: Yeah, and it's shocking how many authors, how many people who are supposedly actual writers have no sense of this whatsoever whatsoever, and um, fall victim to neologisms that sound stale the day after you first hear them. But somehow you think, well, this is going to make me sound cool. This is going to make (laughs) me sound, you know, so, oh, Quran, not understanding that the point is not to be, oh, Quran. I mean, I'm glad you focused on that. That was a passage that when I stumbled on the notion, I had so much fun writing. Just think about what isn't in this book. You know, the word, the ultimate 20s word, you know, today we say, oh, that's so awesome. We've been saying that for quite a while. Someone says, you know, do you have have change for a 20? Yeah. Awesome. God, that's so awesome. (laughs) The world has changed in that moment. Um, Can you fix a tire? Yeah, I can do. Awesome. Well, (laughs) um, in the 20s, that word was swell. Uh Anything was swell. You know, Um, do you have... um, um, Do you have fresh bananas today? Yes, swell. Will you sleep with me? Okay, swell. I mean, it was just the only word. And Fitzgerald does not use that word. It's not in the book. He had a sense that it would infect the book, that it would reduce the characters, that it would freeze them in the moment. And he was in love with these characters. He was creating them. He wanted them to live forever in his imagination if not anyone else's so he couldn't do that and it's quite remarkable that just none of that there's nothing in the book and yet there are phrases that were current then they're not only current today they still have their full meaning Mm -hmm. hated his guts well that's that's a phrase we use now and we use it as if it carries its full meaning Mm -hmm. it's not a metaphor for anything. It means exactly what it says, and it means exactly what it says um, in *The Great Gatsby*.
1: Yeah, and if, do you mind if I read a little bit of this because the writing oh, is excellent here?
0: I would love it if All you right. did. All right,
1: some authors really cringe at that, but I think this is worth it. So, this is several pages. I'm just going to choose two parts that I highlighted. Okay, so Greel writes, "You can hear how alive Fitzgerald always was to cliches, how he understood how certain words or phrases became can't." Oh, became can't. This might actually be a typo in my e-copy. Sorry. So skip ahead. Oh,
0: C-A-M-T.
1: <laughs> so is that a word? Became can't the instant they appeared?
0: Yes. Can't what does the be- word
1: can't mean? Oh my gosh, I should have looked that up. I'm such a fast reader from these book interviews that sometimes I think I skip over words thinking I know what they mean. So they become can't in a sense. They become like passe.
0: Can't means false speech.
1: False speech. Okay, let's do this again. You can hear how alive Fitzgerald always was to cliches, how he understood how certain words or phrases became can't the instant they appeared. He heard how they emerged out of certain political imperatives to weaken speech and thought, to make even the notion of communicating difficult ideas dubious. As I write, under the already old but concrete clouds of back in the day, it is what it is, the devil's in the details, the obvious phrase is simply not in it. Mencken wrote in his review of The Great Gatsby, whose plot he found ridiculously obvious. Fitzgerald understood how and why an artist would never use such phrases, not even ironically. Yes, beautiful. I loved this. And like I said, going back and reading it now, I have a new appreciation for the language of the book, which is weird because it's like I'm being torn between some of the things you're seeing and then Kaufman's uh, mockery that's also kind of Not really a mockery of the book. And so you just, it just, it has such different lives depending on who's reading it to you.
0: Sure. Sure, it does. And the thing is, by the end of Andy Coffin's monologue and, you know, uh, fighting with the audience and the audience screaming and chanting and booing and drowning him out, he only gets through about a page and a half of the book. Yeah. By by that time, it's actually started to get interesting. Right. You want him to keep going.
1: Yes. Right. That's kind of how I felt, too. I haven't been able to find the clip, but um, I have ordered that that SNL uh, edition. So I'm excited to watch it again. Like I said, I mean, I'll, I think. Oh, go I'll ahead. I'll find it for you. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. I couldn't find the whole clip. I could only find uh, little excerpts of it. So with that said, so we talked a little bit about music and that makes me think of the Baz Lerman remake, uh, which which you argue had succeeded in ways. That previous versions of the um, of sort of like the, the the film version of the book had not succeeded, even though many people didn't like the Lerman version. And you seem to think that has two reasons: one is DiCaprio's performance, and two is this use of music. So, do you want to talk about Lerman's remake, which is sort of the um, it's both the introduction to the book and also the concluding big chapter?
0: Yeah, I, I saw that movie in Paris not long w- when it came out. I walked out of the theater, I I said, I wanna go right back in there and see it again. Um, I saw it again in Berkeley when we came home, felt the same way. I saw it again in an airplane. I I was sorry the flight was gonna end and I couldn't watch it again. It just had that um, allure for me. And it was one of those wonderful experiences where one artist takes the work of another artist and says, I love this story. I want to tell it. But in order to tell it, it's got to be fresh for me if I'm going to do anything with it. And so I've got to tear it up. I've got to tear it around the edges. I've got to make a rip down the middle. I've got to make something that I've never seen before and that no one else has ever seen before. I have to take possibilities in the book that maybe were beyond Fitzgerald's reach or that he didn't even understand were there, and I'm going to bring them out. For example, Lerman understands that for all the the glory, the glamour, the allure of Leonardo DiCaprio as he portrays uh, Jay Gatsby, the real, the hero of the story, the central character of the story, is Nick Carraway. Um. He is the person that this book is really about. And that's Toby Maguire. There are all kinds of roles that Toby Maguire had played leading up to this one, where he plays a kind of passive onlooker, at the most active, a kind of witness. But someone who is just standing outside the main action, looking in on it, maybe turning away out of disgust maybe trying to understand, even in the Spider-Man movies, his Peter Parker has that, you know, ultimate essence to it, uh, as well as in Ice Storm, as well as in Wonder Boys and many, many other movies. And here, um, Cider House rules especially, here all those roles come into play, they all come into focus, and it's as if he finally got a role where everything he's done in his career so far mm. can flower and can make him the character he had never really been before. So you're seeing something that's purely cinematic that has to do with the world of movies that enlivens a novel that was written in 1925. Mm. And to me, that was just so magical to find out that you know the book was not really what I thought it was. Mm. i You know, maybe I'm slow. Maybe that was clear to other people. But it wasn't clear to anybody else who'd ever taken it on the way Baz Norman did.
1: Yeah, and you make this comment in the beginning that he wasn't afraid of the book, which I thought was an interesting comment to make.
0: Yes, he's not afraid of the book at all. He's not afraid of its reputation, and he's not afraid, um, you know, of of the vilification that's going to follow. He said before the movie came out, You know, I'm generally considered a kind of um, sex criminal. I'm generally considered a kind of kidnapper um, who just, you know, leaves destruction in his wake. So, you know, what the hell? Why not? Right. When he presents these Gatsby parties, they are so big. They're so noisy. They're so loud. There's so many things happening in the frame at the same time that they're just so full of energy and he's got, you know, he, he names various um, great entertainers from the 1920s who might have been at these parties who Gatsby could have hired to perform at his parties, Josephine Baker and Gilda Gray. And their names sound out as we're watching these parties. And the MC at one party said, and, and now Gilda Gray it was this dancer who, whose specialty was the shimmy. And he, she did the kind of shimmy. you said that shouldn't be allowed. I mean, that's pornographic. Why is that happening? That's and at the same time, your eyes are bugging out. She was something, um, but we don't actually see her. What we see are all kinds of people jumping up and down and dancing to hip hop, the loudest, most expansive, um, funny, and uh, proud of itself hip hop that there is. And you could say. Well, but there wasn't any hip-hop in mm-hmm. 1922. What are you doing? But the feeling is so immediate in these party scenes as Baz Luhrmann has constructed them. That's the only thing they would be listening to. They'd be listening to something that makes you think, not only is hip-hop going to live forever, it was always there. Of course these people would have been listening to Jay-Z. Um, and that's a, that's a sleight of hand. That's a magic trick that happens in this movie. Lana Del Rey wrote a song called um, Young and Beautiful. It's not the Elvis Presley song. Uh, You're so young and beautiful. Wonderful song that he sings at the end of Jailhouse Rock. No, this was a different song. Will you still love me when I'm no longer young and beautiful? In other words, is this fantasy romance between Gatsby and Daisy Is it just a moment? Is it just a complete illusion? What will happen if they actually, after having found each other again, if they stay together, if she throws away her life and he throws away his, and they go on to try and make a life for themselves, and the years pass and they look at each other, and now they're only shadows to each other? What if that happens? And that's the song that Lana Del Rey wrote, what Baz Luhrmann does with it is he weaves it throughout the entire movie. Yeah. The first time you hear it, I think, is with a, uh, a black um, vocal group. Everybody's dressed in yellow, and they're singing it as a kind of foxtrot. And then you can barely hear it as Lana Del Rey recorded its way deep in the background. Then it seems to float over um, Long Island and sound like wind. It, it just becomes a theme. It, in the movie not only because of its metaphorical appropriateness but because it sounds right mm-hmm. and it gives the um the whole movie a dimension of tragedy that it might not have otherwise
1: Yeah, and if you don't mind, I'll read again, but this is, you describe this whole scene and also a lot of these anachronisms, right? Lana Del Rey done as a foxtrot and what would have happened if Beyonce had showed up. I mean, this this is a brilliant reading of this movie, but I'll just read this one passage where you say that, Lerman so fully engages with the setting as Fitzgerald laid it out that the past is present, unfolding as you watch. And then, well into the first party that Nick attends, half an hour into the picture, Gatsby at first like his house is seen an apparition so imbued with possibility that Lerman doesn't let you see him all at once. So it's 30 minutes, this is a brilliant observation. It's 30 minutes before we even see Gatsby and he is sort of present, but not present in this other spectacle of things that are present, but not present, which, which supports your argument that what Lerman did was make, was not make Gatsby the main character, which is part of what accounts for the strength of the film.
0: Yeah, he, and he, he creates scenes that aren't in the book that are so perfect and so strong and so unsettling that you, you think, oh, gee, I forgot that. Of course it was there. I have to go back and look for it right now, and you don't find it. Um, he extended the book, I think, in a way that nobody else has ever really done. He. Well. Yeah, yeah, I
1: agree.
0: He's, he's saying um, he's saying that the book didn't quite fulfill itself. Mm. And this is something that people were arguing about when it came out. People who were totally sympathetic to Fitzgerald and to the book. One of his best readers said, you know, we need to know more about Nick Carraway. Ah. He's, of, he's sort of a shadow. And and the writer, a critic, a great critic named Paul Rosenberg says, he too is a great Gatsby. He's mm-hmm. saying, Fitzgerald, you didn't realize that. And Fitzgerald at one point says in a letter, he says, there, there are holes in the book. I know it. There, there are things I just couldn't get to. But the prose is so good that nobody noticed. And he's saying, he's saying, you know, I wrote so well that the lies in the book weren't apparent. And I think any writer has been in that kind of moment where he or she is writing and the writing is just coming so cleanly and so fully and it just goes on and on. And you're absolutely carried away. And you get to the end, you say, that's the best paragraph I've ever written. I don't have any idea what it means, if it means nothing at all. But it just sounds so great. And that's what Fitzgerald was saying. I did that. I pulled that one off. I sang a song and it was just so beautiful. You never listened to the words.
1: That's amazing. And, and actually this, this leads me into this little chapter you have in the book that I found very interesting because it's ca- you called it the ferment, uh, which is a great word. It has so many meanings. I'll let you pontificate on that. And you make the argument in this chapter that one underlying reason why the Great Gatsby has remained alive is that it absorbed the ferment of its time, 1920 to 1930, that one decade, as Ishmael Reed also puts it in mumbo jumbo, which doesn't seem so much a part of American history as the hidden after hours of America struggling to jam to get through. And so obviously there's a way in which Fitzgerald managed to capture all of that, even if there were pieces of it that maybe eluded him at the time that have since been filled in by new creative imaginings.
0: Well, in a way, I, I don't even know if, if that's true. Okay. Now, the book came out in 1925, right in the middle of the decade. Not at the end. It wasn't a wrapping up. It wasn't a look mm-hmm. back. But in a lot of ways, it is. Because it's implicit in the story of the Great Gatsby, set in 1922, at the very beginning of the decade, that this isn't going to last, that this great uh-huh spree, as Fitzgerald put it. He put it in in an essay he wrote in the 1930s. He said America was going to go on the greatest spree in its history. Implicit in the great Gatsby or even explicit. This is all going to end. This is all going to crash. People are going to be left destitute. People are going to be left slammed. They're going to say, where was I? What happened? Was it real? So the the Gatsby, among other things, is a a working out, a playing out, Mm. not a prophecy of the crash that takes place in 1929. It it isn't a prophecy in saying, you know, look out, look out, this is going to happen. To Fitzgerald, it's already happened. And that's in the book. That, which is not, sort of
1: fascinating for your argument about the American dream that gets woven through the book, which is to say that the American dream is the things that – the crash is not the exception, but the conditions of the crash are sort of what patriotism looks like.
0: Well, patriotism, is, as, as it works its way through this book, if it does, um, patriotism is a legacy and a burden. Mm-hmm. You inherit these vast promises – uh, of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And you also inherit the burden of living up to them, ah. of fulfilling them. You also inherit a country that is based on the on the largest promises any society has ever made to itself or to the world, that there will be equal justice unto the law, that there will be a chance for everybody, that there will be no limits on ambition and possibility that uh, it will be a nation of of fairness, it will be a nation of uh, decency. It will be a place of nobility where even where not only even, but the common person is a noble himself or herself. That's the promise of America, mm. and that promise is betrayed from even before the beginning with slavery. Um, But again and again and again, the promises laid out in, say, the Gettysburg Address, as well as the Declaration of Independence, they are made to be betrayed. Mm. And their betrayal makes people say, oh, my God, you know, this is wrong. This is a crime. We have to make this right.
1: Mm. And that's
0: the story of American history, the attempt to force America to keep its promises, because it will never happen without um, people forcing it to do so. But the 1920s, my God, it's this incredible era. Government pretty much abdicates, pretty uh-huh. much leaves the stage. The real governments at that time, it seemed to me while I was writing this book, were organized crime, mm. the Ku Klan, which it took, in the 1920s took over many northern states, Um, and dominated the politics of many northern states, not just the south. Uh, Donald Trump's father, Fred Trump, was arrested in a Klan rally in the 1920s in Brooklyn. So you had the Klan in New York. You had the Klan running Colorado, running um, Indiana, running a good part of Minnesota, um, very active in California. You had uh, Wall Street. Was another government, and jazz was a fourth uh, government. So it's a it's a fight in that decade uh, between these different forces. It's a time of extraordinary innovation, of invention, of play, of a love of beauty, of uh, a not caring whether something would last or not. Um, it was, and and that goes into the book not as a nostalgic look back, mm. not as a wasn't that a time, but the energy of you can do anything. Not only that, you better do any, every, mm. everything you can with your talent. And that goes into the book, as Fitzgerald said, I'm going to do everything. Even if it's only 55,000 words, everything's going to be in me.
1: Well, and if I could say, I thought your use of Jay Z's hundred dollar bill here was really clever because, right, the the song shows up as part of the soundtrack, of course, also in relationship to Beyonce. But then, when you get to the conclusion of the book and you talk about sort of like this exact legacy that you're speaking of, you use the lyric as an example and you say, uh, you say to quote, Jay Z heard it that way on Boz Lerman's Gatsby soundtrack on his hundred dollar bill playing through the dance of Gatsby, Nick, Tom and Mayor Wolfsheim in the New York speak. And then you quote the lyrics, right? Go numb until I can't feel or might pop this pill. Stock markets crash. Now I'm just a bill. And then you say my favorite sentence, even the dollar loses its voice. Well, I'm glad you like Which that. is, which I mean, you're taking something right that that, that Fitzgerald felt so so viscerally in 1925, and it's it's 2018 or whatever when Jay Z releases this song, and still those same hopes and anxieties are all knotted together in those few lines, which I just thought was such a great thing to notice about that song.
0: Yeah, and it's like you know there are certain events in American history that are touchstones for everybody, even if you haven't studied them, even if you don't know the context. Everybody knows there is there was a stock market crash, and it was just the most shocking event ever. Everybody knows that the World Series was fixed in 1919, something that's at the absolute center of the book. How could Fitzgerald have known that a crime that took place six years before he wrote the book would still be common coin? Eighty, you, you know, um Almost a hundred years later. How could that mm-hmm. more than a hundred years later? The the Black Sox threw the World Series in 1919. That's 101 years ago. Mm. How, how could he know that people would still know who was Joe Jackson was? How could mm. he he couldn't have known? And yet, by instinct, he keyed into a crime where he says to play with the faith of 50 million people. You yeah. had a sense that maybe that would never be forgotten as it's never been.
1: Well, it makes me think of uh, Hunter S. Thompson's uh, epi- uh, eulogy for Nixon, where he talks about, you know, the, the legacy of Nixon is that he, and he's poisoned our water forever and you don't have to know Nixon to be a, sp- to be a victim of Nixon's uh, ugly Nazi spirit. And so that was obviously much later, but it makes me think about sort of, sort of, Hunter Thompson's argument right is that Nixon breaks this this double bind of the American dream right he makes it impossible for people to believe in its false promises the way that they need to to survive as an American and that's why he was such a dangerous president and I just like the way that that sort of presents a counter opinion to the way that you read all of these reverberations of the great gatsby is just this need to keep the promise alive even as people just keep getting disappointed
0: Yeah. And Hunter Thompson, there was a time in his life when he was not primarily interested in being cool. Um, When he really let his heart bleed out on the page, that was one of those times. And he was someone who every few years would sit down and type out the whole of The Great Gatsby. Really? Life for himself.
1: How fascinating.
0: One thing to read it. It's another thing to sit down and type every word for yourself so you're thinking about every word as it happens.
1: Oh, that's dedication. Well, um, we are coming up on time. Is there anything else about... The, and again, this is one of those books where I'm so happy we did an interview, but we are just barely skimming the surface of all that this book has to offer. But is there another little um, like niche anecdote or theme from the book that you want to highlight, one of your favorites maybe, or something we haven't touched on but before we wrap up?
0: Well, you know, I just... Want to say that the book was written, it was tremendous fun to write. It was done in a playful spirit. It was never meant to close any questions. It was never meant to close any book. Um, as if, as if
1: that could be done about Great Gatsby, right?
0: And I hope that people find that spirit uh, in the book if they read it.
1: Well, I certainly found it, and I'm sure that many of our New Books Network listeners um, will hopefully also find it as well. And just as a reminder to New Books Network listeners, we have been speaking with Greel Marcus, author of Under the Red, White, and Blue, Patriotism, Disenchantment, and the Stubborn Myth of the Great Gatsby, which just came out uh, from Yale University Press. And as I always like to remind people, we are so appreciative of the university presses. New Books Network is nonprofit, uh, you know. Grill Marcus wrote a lovely book, but as we all know, nobody's really making a ton of money on books these days. So we appreciate the university press is not only for supporting these kinds of ideas, but also the attention that they pay to producing a good book. So please consider picking up a copy of the book. The price for it for the ebook is incredibly reasonable. I mean, it's almost a steal. It was so inexpensive for how good this book is. But you can also consider reaching out to your local library or your university library, asking them to pick up a copy, or even better, buying a hard copy and donating it so that other people have have... have a chance uh, for these ideas to circulate who maybe don't have access to them. And with that, Greel, would you like to recommend a book for the new books network that's come out in the last five years, or maybe a new album or artist that we should all check out?
0: Uh, A new book in the last five years. Um, Well, there's a book that just came out this year by one of my favorite novelists, Percival Everett. Oh, sure. Many, many novels A book called Telephone. Um, And it's about a man who finds that the thing closest to his heart he can't save. And so he flails around to see if there's something in the world he can save, he can redeem. Um, It's a very down-to-earth story. Um, And it's also a book that has three different endings. So you can go into your local bookstore, if you can go into a local bookstore. (laughs) <laughs> and pick up a copy and read it um, and maybe know that it's only one of the possible endings.
1: Oh, so, oh so, so so different books have different endings, not just all three endings are in one book.
0: No. Um,
1: oh, how? Oh, that's amazing.
0: You know, it's like you put out the same book with three different covers. Yeah, right, right. Um, well, this is the same book with three different endings. Isn't
1: how it? clever.
0: The differences in the endings are just on the last page. Um, I mean, it sounds like a really cruel game. (laughs) um, If you got Percival Everett on your show, I'm sure he could tell you about why he did that.
1: All right. Well, maybe we'll try it out. I don't, I haven't had any fiction authors on, but maybe I'll start branching out into a new area.
0: But it's, um, you know, everything Percival writes has um, a sense of playfulness a sense of of, um, of, of reach and, and a sense of complete down-to-earth unpleasant people who you might really not want to spend any time with uh, who are living their own lives or trying to and sometimes failing just to live their own lives, uh, getting nowhere. All their ideas come to nothing and you you have to stick with them as that
1: happens. Oh, my. Well, I, that sounds like a very interesting read. I will definitely check it out. Well, thank you again for joining us, Grille. We love We have loved having you on the show. And everyone, definitely pick up a copy of Under the Red, White, and Blue. And there's more information in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to either one of us for any comments or questions. Everyone, take good care of yourself and stay safe.
0: Thank you, Lee.